It is great to be here with you guys this morning. For me, this is like a homecoming. I came here to Northeast Ohio just about 11 years ago from New York City, which is where I grew up. And I moved here with my wife and at that time, my oldest son, Liam. And uh, we've had two children, two Buckeye babies. Um, and I don't have to repent of being a Yankees fan because I never was one. Uh, Mets, that was my team. I'm from Queens and Long Island, so Mets were my people. They um, got a bunch of amens on that one. It feels really good to be here. I was on staff at Cuyahoga Valley Church for about seven years and oversaw the care and counseling related ministries here. And this was a very important, meaningful time. Just about five, four or five years, five years ago now, I moved over to Grace Church and have a private practice over there. Um, and Grace Church, which is in Middleburg, Middleburg Heights, I can say with be, being official and clear and unequivocally can say, Grace Church loves you guys. Uh, Cuyahoga Valley, Grace Church, like this. Um, the leadership there, Jonathan Schaefer, the elder team, the pastors and staff, um, just love CVC, Chad Allen, Rick Duncan, the staff here, and there's not a competition among churches. There's a clear sense that they believe in what CVC is doing. I've heard Jonathan pray up front during the morning service for CVC, and, uh, and I know CVC loves grace. So when I left, they were very kind to me, and it was a bittersweet departure. Um, I get to set my own hours, which is a lot easier than being a care pastor, um, where weddings and funerals and care just never stops. So I just really want to thank God and thank you that I get to be here. Um, I just want to share briefly um, a little bit about my story in becoming a pastor and, and becoming a, a licensed therapist who can do mental health work. Um, when I was about 12 years old, my mother um, was a stay-at-home mom, and I was driving, she was driving to go see her pastor, uh, our pastor, for some care and some support. Um, I, I came home from school, and I didn't know where she was, which wasn't typical, because where I grew up, you got to lock the doors, you know, you can't just let people walk in and out. And um, so, the doors were open. Mom wasn't home. She was driving to see a pastor, I found out, for some prayer and some support. And while she was on the way, um, she was on a medication. It was a, a water pill, and it dehydrated her. Um, she, unfortunately, she passed out uh, behind the wheel while she was driving. And uh, she drove through a fence and actually hit a house. Um, and it wrecked the car. And worse, um, she, she hit her head so badly, she went blind permanently in, in her right eye. And then her, her, uh, she went into a coma for about a week, an intensive care unit. Um, and then for a year, she was pretty much in bed on our, on, our, on our sofa in our living room. And that was a very, very traumatic and difficult time for her and for my family. The church did a good job at taking care of us. You know, people show up with casseroles and prayer support and how are you guys doing? How's your mom? How's the recovery? And that's very big part of my story. And the part that a lot of people didn't know about, and to be honest, for me, the hardest part about the story, it wasn't the accident, it was the depression that followed. Um, what I've come to learn is that 
when a person has a head trauma, a very significant head trauma like a concussion, it's very likely that they will uh, have a clinical depression as a result. And, and my mom's depression got so bad um, that you know, it, it affected the way that she thought about herself. Um, when she'd get angry and upset, she'd think everybody hated her and, and nobody, nobody really wanted to be around her. And she was hard to be around uh, when she was angry and sad, but we loved her and she couldn't understand or feel that love during that time. And the depression got so bad, she, she needed three, um, maybe two, possibly three inpatient psychiatric stays. Um, so, so she had to go through the hospital system and stay in, in a psychiatric unit to be cared for, for her depression. And when I look back on that part of my story, um, it's one thing when you go through stuff, you know, it, it's, it's hard. If that person was, was you, if you were my mom, it'd be a hard place to be. But it's quite another when it's somebody that you love and they go through something like that. It's a different kind of pain than when it's you because you're watching somebody that you love, somebody that you care for, suffer. And that's why I went on. I, I actually became pretty obsessed in trying to figure out. I, I know and knew, I was blessed that, that I knew Christ. I knew Christ. I was a Christian as a young boy, as a kid. I knew Christ. I knew Jesus was the answer for me and for my mom. He needed, she needed the Lord, and I needed the Lord to get through that. And that was a gift that I knew that and that she knew that. But my real question was, how? How, how, how does Jesus change things? What difference does he make on my mom's depression or on how I deal with her depression? What is the intersection between our, our, our mental and our spiritual health? You know, we call mental illness, it's a, it's, a no, it's a no casserole illness. People don't show up to shovel out your driveway when you're struggling with depression. Or if you have a panic attack, uh, they, they, they don't come by with a meal and say, you know, here, here's, a, here's a lasagna I made for you. You know, I know you're struggling with panic attacks. Here, here, I, want, I want to take care of you this way. It, it's, a, it's a very private form of suffering. And there comes with it a lot of shame and a lot of heartache. And, and appropriately, there's a lot of privacy issues when it comes to people's mental health issues. And, and I want to focus a bit on this, this idea that if we can have a new life view, a new life view on mental health, to, to know that, that if we pursue mental health, it's a physical and spiritual act of worship. So that in 2018, I can't believe it's 2018. Good riddance to 2017. For some of you, it's been a great year, but I look at it and go, thank you, Lord. 2017 is done. 2018. May we be mentally well. May we be blessed. And if we're not mentally well, if we have mental illness, may, may we find hope and help from the Lord and from the body of Christ. really wanted to know why, why do people, including Christians, why do they suffer from mental illness? You know, this isn't just a, a big amorphous national problem. This is you. This is me. This is your kids. This is your spouse, your parents. Some of you have kids with ADHD, or some of you might have a parent that's in care for dementia or Alzheimer's. Some of you have depression, and it's a big deal that you showed up this morning. Just getting dressed 
putting on your clothes and wearing a mask so that you're socially appropriate is the hardest thing you could do. And you came today, and I am so glad you're here. But a point I want to make is that many of us, we don't have a clear view of our own mental health. We don't know what it means for ourselves to be mentally healthy, and therefore we don't really understand what mental illness is. And we know from the research in mental health that there's a lot more to be said about what's wrong diagnostically, what's wrong with people, than we do when we say what is or who is a healthy person, what is mental health. But if we don't know what mental health is, then mental illness becomes even more obscure and difficult to understand. C.S. Lewis, he made this quote, and I really like this. He said, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. I wonder how many of you are struggling with mental health problems or somebody that you love is struggling with mental health problems today. If you could think about not just the statistics I'm about to share, but if you could think about a person, a specific person, and it might be you, it might be somebody that comes to your mind, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, but if you could focus on that person while I'm sharing these ideas so that it's not a detached statistic, but a personal reality. According, according to the research by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at the University of Wisconsin, nearly one in five adults, about 43 million, had a diagnosable mental disorder within the last year. Do you hear that? One in five. So that's not saying that all of these people were diagnosed. It's saying that they fit the criteria, that they had what it took, that if they were in front of a mental health professional, the mental health professional could certify it and say, yes, you have a mental illness. This fits the criteria for this kind of problem. That's one in five. And mental illness is so broad in scope, it doesn't express itself the same way. There's different types and different variations, different kinds of mental health problems. For some people, it's episodic, where they'll have an episode, like a depression, that can last for a month or two. Um, some people, they might have a long-term, low-grade depression, which we call dysthymia, and it's a, it's, a, it's a depression where they just fly low, and some people might think of them as like a Debbie Downer or an Eeyore type, but it's a, it's a kind of depression where it's consistent and low. It's not episodic. For some people, it's, it's chronic, where, again, long-term or anxiety-related. For some people, it's undiagnosed or misdiagnosed that people are thought to have a spiritual problem when it's actually it's, it's a mental health problem. Many people go untreated and undiagnosed. 16 million Americans experience some form of depression. Depression for us in the counseling world, that is seen as like the common cold. That is the most commonly seen issue, depression and anxiety. But it is the most frequently seen issue. 36% of teenage girls and 14% of teenage boys suffer from depression. When I was here some seven years ago, the Tuckermans, great family, went to church here. Um, they, they had a neighbor, and they asked me to visit the neighbor. It was a 12, they, they, the neighbor had a 12-year-old that took their life from Brexville Broadview Heights schools. Just a few weeks ago, my neighbor from behind, I live in North Royalton, right off of Wallings, and uh, my neighbor, uh, I think he was 12, he, he, he committed suicide. This is not a statistic that's out there. It's our neighborhood. 
It's our schools. It's our families. It's our kids. This is, this is here in this church. It's me. It's you. Problem is people don't have access. Half of the counties in America don't have immediate access to a single mental health provider. Again, according to Robert Wood Johnson, he, he, they studied on, on the accessibility of mental health providers. And accessibility is a key issue because we're constantly trying to figure out what gets in the way of people getting good mental health care. One of the key issues is a lack of community support and that people who struggle or suffer with mental illness, they often become isolated. They feel lonely. They feel like nobody understands. And when I think about accessibility, it's greatly impacted by a lack of community support. The church is meant to be a place where people find support, where it can address one of those obstacles. There's nothing more encouraging and supportive than having a church where you can walk in, whether you're mentally healthy or not, where it's safe for you to be here. And, and, and I know firsthand example that there are going to be some people here, it's just best you don't talk about your mental health problems with. No offense, I'm not looking at any one person right now, all right? But some of you need to know there are staff here and there are leaders here who are safe, who will accept you. They won't judge you. They won't assume there are good people, there are community supports. And a lot of people who have mental illness, their family and friends and churches, they get in the way of them getting mental health care. They judge them or they say, don't, don't go see the counselor, just pray about it. Did you pray about it first? And it's like, well, yeah, what about praying and seeing the counselor? For some people, it's affordability, things like poverty, or even just working two jobs. Who has time? You're glad you made it to church this morning. Who has the time or the money to pay for a counselor or a copay or an insurance plan. I got to be a part of the church developing a benevolence fund here. The, the church can help people who, who attend with getting counseling and mental health care. That there's, there's a benevolence fund. There's financial support. The church needs to be a part and more so of addressing this mental health problem and seeing people get the care that they need. Accessibility is an issue. Cuyahoga County, there's one mental health provider for every 400 people. Summit County, there's one mental health provider for every 523 people. In Medina County, there is one mental health provider for every 953 people. Psychiatry has done its best to address these issues, and some of the top psychiatrists will admit that as hard as they've tried, they have not perfectly addressed this issue. And I'm not looking to, to make the church a psychiatric institution or to promote psychiatry or even attack psychiatry. I'm just saying in some of the words of a psychiatrist, this is, this is one comment by Alan Francis. And, and he said, we spend twice as much on health care as other countries and have only mediocre outcomes to show for it. Some of our citizens are harmed by too much medical care, others by shameful neglect. Medicine and psychiatry both stand greatly in need of taming, pruning, reformation, and redirection. So psychiatry has tried to answer these problems and knows that it can't do it perfectly. Another psychiatrist, the former director of the highest institution of research on mental health, the National Institutes for Mental Health, Dr. Stephen Hyman said, we psychiatrists have been given an impossible task. Our medications are sometimes able to alleviate symptoms though they often come with side effects, but we cannot give people what they really need. People need meaning and relationship. 
Can the church say amen to that? That's why we look to God's word. Maintaining our mental health is a biblical issue, and it takes dedicated effort. It takes a level of self-awareness, and God wants us to be aware of him, and he can help us with our mental health. He wants us to know who we are and what we have to offer. Romans 12.1 goes like this, and this is a paraphrase. I love this. This is, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans 12, verse 1, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you. Another translation, the ESV version of the Bible, it, it translates it this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If you know about studying the Bible, you know that the Apostle Paul, he's, he's written 13 books in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. He's written 13 books, and many say Paul's greatest book was the book of Romans. Romans was a book that Paul wrote to encourage the Christians that were starting to grow in Rome. And what he does in this book is he outlines the foundation, the, the, very, the very core of the Christian faith. And he does this in chapters 1 through 11. And if you know about studying the Bible and you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Paul is saying, based on the mercies of God that we've seen in chapters 1 through 11, based on the mercies of God, I urge you, I beg you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, God's mercy that we know from chapters 1 through 11 is that God, he is perfect. He is holy and he is just. And man is a sinner. Man is separated from God because of his sin. But God, through Christ, showed us love and he showed us mercy. God, through Christ, laid down his life he who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He showed us his love through Jesus. Let me speak it plain to you guys. God wants you to give him your heart. But to do it, you first admit, I'm a sinner. And God then takes your heart when you give it to him and he says, I know you're a sinner. I've provided a way for you to be made clean, made right. And then he gives you your heart back. And he gives you the righteousness of Christ. He now gives you a new inside resource, a relationship with Jesus that enables you to live in the world as a broken person in a broken world. Paul, he's saying, this is what I want you to do as a form of worship to God. Worship God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be holy and acceptable to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, maintaining our mental health is a biblical issue and it takes effort. If you work on your core beliefs, which is the very orienting things, the grid or the framework by which you look at the world, that can give you a tool to, to make sense of problems and to deal with difficult situations, difficult people and health issues. 
That when we have this understanding of ourselves and of God and of what's going on, the gospel, the good news, it gives you this ability to understand yourself better. In mental health, we talk about people's beliefs, especially in an approach that we call cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a research-based approach to addressing mental health problems where you look at a person's, the ABCs, their affect, which is their feelings, their behaviors, which is what they do, and their cognitions, which is how they think, the ABCs. In mental health, it's really driven, especially the cognitive behavioral approach, to look at how a person thinks and what they believe. For the Christian, we find that our core beliefs are shaped by what God says about us. I want to sound smart, so I'm going to use a big word. It's a fancy word. I want you to think I'm smart. Because I'm insecure. For a Christian, epistemology is an important word. And no, I'm not angry at anybody. Epistemology, it's, it's this idea that we have a justified belief and it's not just an opinion. It's the study of how a person knows things. For the Christian, our epistemology is built on God's mercy shown to us through Christ. And for the Christian, our core values are expressed in our worship. You see, what's important to you, you will exalt, you will lift up. I saw my wife and my kids show up just a little bit ago. They are important to me. I love them. They are the most important thing to me in the world. But what God says is he wants me to worship him first above my wife and my children. He wants me to put him first. He is worthy of worship. For the Christian, there's this other fancy word we call axiology, which is the study of the nature of value or the valuation of things. For the Christian, God wants to be first. He wants us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. And we show that we've done this by giving everything we've got to him. That I can say, God, take my wife, take my kids, take my car, take my money, take, take my problems, take my health, my mental health, my lack of health, my lack of mental health. Take it all, God. It's yours. I surrender it to you. The Christian Counseling and Education Foundation has done a lot of work in thinking through how, how does worship, how does glorifying God make a person mentally healthy? And then what happens when you worship other things or other people besides God? I want to share a story about Michael Mansour. He was a guy that, that he gave his life as a living sacrifice. In Operation Enduring Freedom in Iraq, he, he was a Navy SEAL in the Delta Platoon. And he was sent in 2006 with his platoon. And um, on September 29th, 2006, uh, he, he was on a mission. And on the top of a rooftop where, where an insurgent tossed a grenade and he was up there with his buddies, with his coworkers. And while he's up there and the grenade shows up and it was a live grenade, what do you think the guy did? He jumped on it. He jumped on it. He yelled grenade. And then he smothered the grenade with his body and then took the hit. Some others were injured, but they survived because 
He gave his life so that they might live. On March 31st, 2008, he was posthumously given the Medal of Honor by the President Bush, who cried during the presentation. He gave his life so that others could live. He, gave, he made himself a living sacrifice. Christ did that for us. He took the grenade for us. He took the hit. He made it possible so that we could be connected to God. I wonder how, if we can value ourselves, if we can look at ourselves through the lens of the way God sees us, that he cared so much for us, that he gave his son for us. See, the new life view on mental health is that, that when we pursue mental health, there's, there's a way in which we're living in obedience to God and we're offering our bodies, our minds, our soul, everything as a physical and spiritual act of worship. See, maintaining our mental health is a biblical issue and it takes dedicated effort. But mental illness, in contrast, is both a real and complex problem. See, there's a lot of things that go into mental illness and, and there isn't one particular cause that we can say, this is why a person has a particular mental illness. But it's real and it's complicated. God gives us some tools and some resources to deal with mental illness as a Christian. Romans 12 verse 2 it goes like this. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. The language that he's using is, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let it squeeze you into its mold, but let God change you from the inside out. One of the tasks in counseling that's most challenging with people is taking them from the problems they have in the world to the problems they have in their heart. To see that you can't change your situation and you can't change people, but you got to work on you. A lot of husbands and wives, they, they, they show up in counseling and they'll immediately say it's their fault. And when they're in that position, change cannot and will not happen. It starts with people being able to say, I've got a problem and I've got to deal with it. What's my way of contributing to this issue? Paul is saying, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold but let God change you from the inside out. He's saying this, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you can discern what, the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For some of us, it's a moment by moment thing. It's saying, God, I, I, I need you, I need your help. And I need it right now. I, I have a situation in front of me that's tough. I'm stressed out and I'm overwhelmed. God, I surrender to you. This is yours. I give you this problem. And God can give us the strength. He can give us the wisdom to handle these things. But, you know, as a Christian, we really need to fight against the worldly stigmatizations that come against mental illness. We cannot be a harbor or a haven for stigmatizing mental illness in the church. And the church has done this, and with that has come great damage. We've done that especially by false views of suffering, that we assume that just because a person suffers with a mental illness, that means that there's a sin that they've done, or there's something wrong with them. Or we've used language where we think, well, they're just a little off. Or we do the whole finger thing, like, look at them, they're nuts. In the church, that cannot be accepted. That's not okay. We've got to fight against these worldly stigmatizations and these false views of suffering where people think that it's, it's not okay for a Christian to suffer mentally. 
It's not possible for a Christian to have mental illness. That's a lie. Mental illness is a real and complex problem. Nobody has a perfect mental health status. Nobody. All of us have some level of brokenness, and all of us are in need of maturity of heart and mind and body. The only person who's ever had perfect mental health is Jesus Christ. I want to highlight a couple of myths. Things that you might believe or might have even said or implied. And I want to go against these statements because they're things that are very common. First myth is you are all alone and you can handle it alone. The second, that mental illness is forever and it can't change. That, that you're stuck and there's no getting out of it. And that is a, such a common issue, especially with depression. When a person gets into a, a dark place, into a black hole, one person I know, they, they call it, it's like a, a pit of mirrors. And they can only see the bad things about themselves and in the world, and they can't see outside of it. And it feels like it's forever and that it'll never change. Another myth is that nobody will understand. Or that... that I'm broken, I'm forever broken and I'm weak, that my mental illness is, is because of my weakness or that my illness is who I am. I've had ADHD since I was a kid and I was diagnosed later on in life as an adult and I, I take medications for it. And a lot of people, when they make jokes about ADHD, because it's such a common thing, um, I, I smile or laugh on the outside, but inside it, it, it bothers me. It's a way that I suffer. It, it's a, it stinks being so impulsive and so distractible, and not being able to concentrate, and to feel like my social skills are just constantly off, even when other people don't know it. But my ADHD is not who I am. It's a problem that I struggle with. Another myth is that it's your fault that you are mentally ill. Or that you should just be able to snap out of it. If you took your meds, if you went to counseling, if you did what the church said, then you wouldn't have this problem. It doesn't work that way. Some people take their meds and they do the counseling and the mental illness persists. It doesn't go away. It's not like you do one thing and then it works. It's going to be healed or changed. This is the one that really hurt the most and especially affected me and my family. Is that mental illness has a single cause like sin or spiritual warfare. When, when my mom had the accident and she was incapacitated physically, nobody said, what sin did you do that led to that car accident? But when she struggled with depression, people would say things like, well, is there anything you need to repent of? Let's talk about your sin and how that's contributing to your depression. And not that she wasn't a sinner, that, not that we all aren't sinners, and not that her sin didn't affect her depression, because I believe it did, but there's an assumption in there. There's a belief system that, Sin is what causes mental illness. It's not always sin, and I've seen people even accuse people with schizophrenia as being demonized. And I'm not saying that's impossible. I do believe in spiritual warfare, but there are some people where if they can just take their meds, they'll seem like they're mentally clear-headed. And it's not because of the demonic warfare. It's a brain chemistry issue. Another myth is that real men don't get depressed. And I want to say, a lot of us guys, when we get depressed, it shows up in us being angry and cranky. And there's a lot of husbands getting elbowed right now. See, I told you you needed counseling. <laughs> and I'm not saying every cranky husband is clinically depressed. I'm just saying, 
some of you guys are really cranky and angry and it's about depression. It's because there's a sadness that's in your heart and it's expressed through your anger and irritability. Another myth is that there's physical and environmental differences that they don't matter. You know, it does matter that if you're a woman, you are far more likely to get depressed than a man, although men are less likely to be diagnosed and treated with depression. Or that there are other physical issues. There can be genetic issues. There can be brain injury issues. There can be other disease issues that are interrelated with that depression. So environment matters too. If you're in poverty, if you're poor, um, this multiplies the likelihood that you're going to struggle with a mental illness. These things affect mental health. It's a lie to think that they don't. The final myth is that it's not okay to talk about it. I thank God that Chad allowed me to stand up here and preach Romans 12, 1 and 2 and talk about mental health for the new year. You see, pursuing mental health is a physical and spiritual act of worship. My last brief point here is that mental health is a gift to share within the context of a loving community. We want the church to be a place where people can be mentally well and share this with each other. And when they're not well, this can be a haven where it's safe for them to be open and talk about how they struggle. Paul says in Romans 12, 3 through 6, as your spiritual teacher, I give you this piece of advice to each of you. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given you all. So Paul is saying, as your spiritual teacher, I give this piece of advice to each of you. Don't hang on to these exaggerated ideas of yourself or of your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. One of the ideas that comes from this text is that, that our identity, what we most believe about ourselves, it's sane when we find it in Christ. It keeps us from seeing ourselves as too important or too low. It helps us to know, like, like this word on the side of the room here, that we are God's beloved children. And how, how can a person work on their identity? For them to learn how to recognize that there are scripts, there are things that we've been handed, beliefs about ourselves that we've internalized from the world and that we can understand and look at those scripts. And there are things that we've been told about ourselves that are lies, that our pain has multiplied the falsehoods about the things that we've told ourselves. One thing I've told myself is that, that I'm stupid, that I'm not so smart. And through Christ, we can look at those scripts and we can challenge those false beliefs and we can look at our story through the lens of how does God see me? He gave me the mind and the intellect that I've got. It's not better than, it's not less than what it is. I got what I got. It's me. And God knows that and he loves me who I am and where I'm at. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. It gives me courage. It gives me strength. When we share our mental health within the context of community, we have a purpose, which is to bring glory to God by the loving use of our gifts. That God wants us to use these gifts as a body. And it's our responsibility to participate in the solution of this health crisis. That when we think about this is us, this is our church, these are our leaders, these are our church attendees, these are our kids, that we have a job to do, which is to love people to take care of them. We can't ignore this crisis, this mental health crisis in our country, in our state, in our church anymore. And we have a hope that God can redeem people's suffering, that he can use their pain 
to lead people to trust him. And the church can be a place where people are allowed to talk about how they suffer, how they fail, how they've struggled. And people can have hope knowing that God can do a work through that. See, these myths have done damage to me and to my family and my church, but they don't have to. My mom has come a long ways. Um, she's taken her meds. She's off them. She's gone through counseling. One of the coolest things was hearing my mom say, you know, she's praying for me. And she's, she's given me permission to talk about what she's been through. But my mom experienced Christ through her suffering. And that's a real gift to her. You know, my prayer was that God would take away her pain. But God met with her through her pain. And he met with me. It led me to pursue a career in ministry and in counseling and in mental health. It was, it was a tool that God used to change me and make me more like Jesus. I wonder what God is doing in your life right now. Here's some applications. Would you pray for yourself? Would you pray that God would bless you with mental health for the new year? And would you work hard and chase after that? Would you pray for the person that you thought of, whether it was you or a loved one, who's struggling with a mental health issue? Would you seek help that if you needed counseling, that you'd come, the church has a lot of places to get emotional support and even financial support. There's a benevolence fund that's helped a lot of people to get counseling because they couldn't afford it. If you need that, don't be afraid to ask. And further, if somebody that you know needs it, you can point them in that way. And if they don't go, still love them through it. There's some really great resources out there. There's books to read on, on a Christian view of mental health. There's different ways that we can help. Don't get in the way of people getting the services that they need. Support them as they go for it. Maybe you're a small group leader. Maybe you're a parent or a teenager. You each have a different level of giftedness and understanding. And I'm not encouraging you all to become mental health providers. I'm just asking you to be supportive of people who struggle with mental health issues. There are a bunch of agencies and resources that are out there. And I want to highlight a few of them. The one um, is right in front of me. <laughs> My buddy, Walt Broadbent, uh, he's a psychologist in private practice. I love this guy. Um, he's a therapist and a solid Christian therapist. Um, he knows mental health issues, and uh, he's a resource. There's Cornerstone of Hope just a few blocks away. Um, a few blocks, I sound like a New Yorker. <laughs> An independence over there, you know. Next door, next door. Um, cornerstone of hope. They do grief counseling. Uh, people who've lost a loved one, uh, dealing with suicide issues, dealing with uh, overdose issues, they, they provide grief counseling. Very, very low cost. They don't turn people away. They offer groups that are free. Um, they have some individual counseling there. There's a place called Fieldstone. All the stuff is in your program. Please look at it, because even if it's not for you, it might be for somebody that, that you know that needs it. Um, Fieldstone is a biblical counseling center started by my friend Jonathan Holmes from Parkside Church. And uh, it's, it's just they're great people. They, they do biblical counseling that are, that's clinically informed. There's also some, some clinical mental health agencies like Emerge, North Coast Family Foundation, uh, Family Center by the Falls with Dr. Steve Gersovich. Um, he's done some great stuff called Key Ministries on kids with mental health. He's a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So there's resources. I'm just listing off names here. 
We're so blessed, guys. We have Christ. We have a church. There are resources for mental health care. If you need it, reach out. Get the help you need. May God bless you this year. May we be a worshipful people who are surrendered with renewed minds. And that can only come through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. I pray your blessing on these people. I pray that if there's a man or woman or child out there with a mental illness, that they would feel this was not further stigmatizing or shaming them, but they would feel like the church is a safe place to get help and hope. I pray for those that might be visiting that uh, don't have a relationship with Christ and maybe they're frustrated or confused by some things that I said. I pray they would feel welcomed here and um, that they would know that this is the kind of church that cares for them. I pray, Lord, that the barriers that get in the way of people getting the hope and help they need would be moved over, that there'd be prayer times and small groups where people aren't shamed for mental health problems and mental illness, um, but that people would just receive the help they need from you and from the resources that are available to them. Lord, I thank you, thank you, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.